Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he, meaning Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun. And the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and the father, and they followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray together and let's ask God to speak to us this morning. Father, we do ask that you would open our eyes, reveal things to us that we could not know on our own. Give us strength as we look into this text, and I pray that you would speak to us and that you would bring us to the face of Jesus so that we might experience him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I read this parable, a modern-day parable. On a dangerous ocean coast where shipwrecks occurred all of the time, there sat a little hut. And this hut was manned by a couple weary people. It was a life-saving station. They would work tirelessly day and night, watching for shipwrecks, and then getting in their one little boat and going out into the dangerous sea and trying to rescue those who are lost at sea. Now those over time who were rescued began to volunteer and give themselves to the work of this life-saving station. And the station began to grow. They began to have trained crews. They were able to raise money and get a bunch of boats. As time went... The crews looked around the the little hut, and they said, you know, this isn't quite good enough. So they began to upgrade. They exchanged the cots for nice beds. They began to buy nice furniture and, and furnish the place. The hut, now this beautiful little building, became really a, a nice gathering place for the members of this life saving station. They began to hang out there all the time. They began to invest their own money in beautiful decor 
and luxurious furniture. And the more comfortable the life-saving station got, and the more they just enjoyed hanging out with each other, the less they wanted to get into the cold, dangerous waters and save those who were lost at sea. So, since they had enough money, they began to pay outsiders to come in and do the work of life-saving for them. Well, one night, on a cold, dark, stormy night, there was a massive shipwreck. Many people were lost at sea, and all of the boats went out. Everybody worked hard, and the crews began bringing in all of these cold, wet, half-drowned people. Dirty, making the place filthy, laying on the exquisite furniture that they just bought. Now, after that, things had to change. <laughs> we can't have this. So they raised some money. They built some outbuildings. And they said, this, these will be the buildings where we put people when they come. They're not, they can't come into the, into the club. Now, the club, it sort of maintained the ethos and sort of this, this motif of being a life-saving place. They even had a ceremonial life put in the middle of the living room. So that way all new club members would come and, and be taught about the history of life-saving that went on there. Now, some, a, few, a very few uh, of, of those that were part of this club said, you know, we really need to be about the life-saving mission that we came here for. But the vast majority said, no, that's too much work, and that's dangerous. And we've got a pretty good thing going here. And if we begin bringing in all of these wet, dirty, half-drowned people, it's going to ruin the entire club. And we'll lose all of this beautiful stuff that we have, all the money that we've invested. And so the majority told this minority, they said, look, if you want to save people, if you want to continue that, just go down the shore a little bit and start, a, start up a, a, your own little life-saving mission. And so they did. They went down the shore and they started their own little life-saving station. But over time, that crew fell prey to the same temptations and they began to care more about comforting each other than they were about rescuing the perishing. That sort of went on for a number of years, and if you were to visit this coast today, you would find one empty life station after another, all museums of a life-saving mission that once was. And ships are still wrecking, and people are still drowning at sea. There was a pastor who said, you know, the... the, the uh, the biggest challenge that every missionary faces is to remain a missionary once they get to the field. Meaning, a missionary, let's say, going to some third world country, leaving the United States, they, this heroic move, and they raise funds and money, and people bless them, and the church blesses them, and they get on a plane, and they move, and they, they get there, and as, and as soon as they get there, they start to acquire comfort build security. And over time, it is so hard to not just simply live the sort of Western comfortable life in this other land and then distance themselves from those that actually live there. 
And I want to say this for us today. That's not the missionary problem. That's the Christian problem. That's the problem for every single one of us. It's the problem for every single church. It's the challenge, I should say, for all of us. We are called to a life-saving mission. Whether you like it or not, this life is short. And eternity is huge. And I want to deal with eternity. And I'm looking at this life, and I'm recognizing that it is so easy to be distracted by comfort and caring more about comforting each other than about being on this life-saving mission, rescuing the perishing, caring for the dying. So we get into the text today. And what we see is Jesus beginning his ministry, and he see, we, we see the call of Jesus going out to the first disciples. And so I want to talk to you today then on this theme, fishers of men. Fishers of men. Let's look at it. I'll hit this in, in uh, three different headings, the masses, the message, and the mission. So first, let's take a look at the masses. This is, who is it that we are to go to? Or first, here in the context, who is it that Jesus is going to? He's turning to the masses. Now, specifically what we see happening in this text is Jesus is turning away from the self-righteous. He's turning away from those, essentially, who don't need a Savior. Those who say, I'm good to go. He's turning away from the self-righteous, and he's turning to the broken. Let's look at it. Right here in chapter 4, verse 12, we see a couple things happening. And actually, let me, hold up, let me, let, me, let me say this before I get into this. If I, were, if I were to tell you that I needed some groceries, let's say I'm like really struggling and I just need some groceries for a couple weeks to get, get by with my kids. And so you, you pull out a $100 bill. You're like, Joel, here you go. 100 bucks. get some groceries. And then let's say about three weeks go by, and you come over to my house, and you sit at my table, and you see on the table, your $100 bill is still sitting on my table, right where you left it. And you know it's yours because you drew a little smiley face on it, and you were doodling, and like, that's my $100 bill. And you haven't even used it for groceries. What are you going to want to do? Whether you do it or not, what do you want to do? Yeah, I think I'm just going to take that back, all right? Seeing as you don't need my generosity. Listen to what Matthew Henry says about Christ. Matthew Henry says this, and I want this to, in some ways, I want this to haunt us. Matthew Henry said, it is just... For God to take the gospel and the means of grace away from those that slight him and thrust him away. Christ will not stay long where he is not welcome. We see in this text a couple things happening. Let me give it to you in three scenes. First, verse 12, scene 1, John the Baptist is arrested. Now, what does that mean? John the Baptist, he's the guy we saw a couple weeks ago baptizing Jesus, preaching, repent, here he comes, the Messiah. 
John the Baptist is arrested. We find out later he's arrested by Herod, the king of the Jews, who in some ways doesn't completely represent the people, but the people use him for what they want him to do. We see this later with the crucifixion. The arrest of John the Baptist means that the very prophet who has come to prepare the way for the Messiah has been rejected himself. And he's arrested. And he's about to be beheaded. Now, because of John's arrest, what Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus then turns his direction and he goes somewhere else. And he goes away from a primarily Jewish region to a region that is a mix of Jews and Gentiles. So we see this in verse 15. He goes, it says, beyond the Jordan. Which for them, they they understood that that was a region called the Galilee of the Gentiles. This area in which a lot of Gentiles lived. Now, for those of you that are new to Christianity, this is something that you really need to know. The Jews were God's chosen family. And by the time of Jesus, they began believing that they are good to go just simply because of their Jewishness. Just simply because they've got the bloodline of Abraham, they're good to go. Not only that, but they began to look down on and despise any Gentiles, a.k.a. non-Jews, which is probably most of us here. They looked down upon anybody that was not like them. For them, the Gentiles were in darkness, meaning they have no hope. They're on the way to hell. For them, the Gentiles were broken, hopeless, Now, pause right there. The gospel of Jesus Christ went to the broken during the ministry of Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of times, some of you, some of you have no dog in this fight, but a lot of times theologians will sit and argue about when the gospel of Jesus Christ went to the Gentiles. And a lot of people say it was with the Apostle Paul. Paul took the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm looking at this text and I'm saying, no. The gospel went to the Gentiles with Jesus. Jesus was the one who was taking the gospel himself into these places of absolute darkness and brokenness. Now, this would have been very strange for the Jewish people at the time. And so what Matthew's doing here is he's quoting Isaiah, saying this is exactly what the the Messiah is supposed to do. Like, this is perfectly in line with what we expected. We see, look at the quote here, chapter 4, verse 16, 15 and 16. Uh, this is where he's going to go. The land of Nephtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of Gentiles, the people who are dwelling in darkness. They have seen a great light. The ones who are dwelling in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And the same is true for us today. Christ goes to those in darkness. He goes to those who are living, not in self-righteousness, but in the shadow of death. Just yesterday, as we were walking around the neighborhood, 
interacting with one individual who's just so broken in so much darkness. And then we go up the street and interact with another individual who uh, has, has worked one job in his life, but other than that, just hustles in order to get by. Uh, and then right after that, interacted with a group of teenagers. Um, and you know how awkward it always is to just interact with teenagers, period, right? Especially when you're trying to talk about the church and they're like looking at you like you're from Mars or somewhere else, Ohio maybe. <laughs> from Ohio. Um, which is utter brokenness. And then walk around the corner, some dude's walking out of the corner store and tells his buddy, I'm going to go get some smack. I'm just like, man, there's so much brokenness. So much darkness. Like, everybody's, everybody's broken. And we could go into other corridors of Baltimore City and where there's, you know, maybe, maybe people are put together socially. Their hearts are filled with greed, with despising others, with racism, various prejudices. Friends, Jesus goes to the broken. That's where Jesus is. That's where he's going. He's not hanging out in the club with the self-righteous. Jesus is going to the broken. Meaning he's going to those who are in darkness, in the shadow of death, and he says, on them a light has dawned. This is like an early morning before the sun has actually risen and the sky is already light. Some of you are like, that happens? I've never been up that early. Yeah, it's called dawn. On them a light has dawned. It's time to wake up. It's time to begin living in the day. This is the picture that we get as Jesus goes. Now, scene three, flip to the, back, the end of the, the uh, chapter here. The end of chapter four, we see then who is coming to Jesus. Now, at the time during this era the self-righteous Israelites believed that the problem with Israel are the diseased, those that are hurting, those who are demon-possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics. Like, these are the problems. These are the problems because all of these broken people who have all of these physical issues, oh, they have it because they must, they must be sinners. This must be the curse of God. These are the scum of the earth. And if the Messiah were to come, we need to get rid of these people so the Messiah doesn't see them. Who's coming to Jesus at the end of Matthew chapter 4? It's not the quote-unquote righteous Who's coming to Jesus? We see this, this, this amazing scene where he's going throughout all of Galilee teaching, proclaiming the gospel, and those that are coming to Jesus, verses 24 and 25, they're bringing the sick, those that are afflicted with diseases and pains, those who are oppressed with demons, epileptics, paralytics, and Jesus, instead of condemning them, is giving them wholeness reversing the pains, the diseases, the possessions. And he's bringing wholeness into the life of the broken. So who is it then that we're going to? 
We're not looking for religious people. The self-righteous, we're going to the broken. Why? Because we are the diseased. We are the ones who have pains. Like every one of us who are believers, we could stand up here right now and share stories about the darkness that God has delivered us from. I would encourage you to share those stories with each other. In what ways has God healed you? In what ways were you broken? And on you the light has dawned. Second heading, first the masses. Secondly, here's the message. See it in verse 17. Repent and follow after Jesus. Do you guys remember as a kid playing the game, follow the leader? How many of you remember that? Follow the leader? Let's have a... Let's, let's, let's go through the instructions here. Can one, can one of my kids help me? What are the directions for the game follow the leader? How do you play it? Kearney, could you help me, buddy? How do you... She said follow the leader. What? Okay, so it takes at least two people, right? Come on, we need some help here. So there's two people. You would have a leader, right? And you would have a... Well, maybe we could call him a follower, all right, and so whatever the leader does, what does the follower do? Kearney, do you know? He does the same thing or she does the same thing. So if the leader hops, the follower is to do what? Hop, exactly. Now kids get it. All right, so kids, they play a game called follow the leader, and what they intrinsically know is that if you're if you're following a leader, you're supposed to do what the leader does. <laughs> it's like really simple. And then as we get older, it gets so complex. Right? We get distrustful of leaders. We, we, we question their motives. At, at extremes, anti-authoritarianism. Just rejecting all leadership structures, rejecting all authority structures. It's all bad. We look at Hebrews chapter 13 where it says, obey your leaders in the church and submit to them. And we're like, what does that even mean? I mean, it sounds like a cult. And then when it comes to following Jesus, to what, we, we, we would much rather sit in a small group somewhere and endless, have endless conversations about what it might mean to follow Jesus. What does that mean? We'd rather just talk about it. Maybe read a book about it. More than we actually like to do it. You know why? It's because following Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and actually follow after him. We like the concept, but we don't like the reality of denying our own pride, denying our own ways, denying our own desires, and following after Jesus. Well, look what Jesus does here. He turns now to a few disciples. He comes to two sets of brothers, and he looks at them in verses 18 through 21, and he simply says what? Two words. What are they? Follow me. That's the call right there. 
That's the call to follow Christ. Follow me. It's just that simple. Now, I want you to notice a couple things in this text. The first set of brothers, Simon and Andrew, they're tending to a net. The second set of brothers, James and John, I forgot which ones they were. <laughs> James and John got a net. They're in their boat. They've got their father Zebedee with them as well. Now, what I want you to notice in the text here is that when they respond to Jesus' call to follow him, what do they do? They follow him, and they leave behind. It's, it, it tells us they leave their nets, first set of brothers. The second set of brothers, it says they leave behind their boats and their father. You see, I think what Matthew's doing for us here is he's conjuring up these images for this, these first century fishermen of what it means to have possessions, what it means to have comfort, what it means to have security, to be able to make a living perhaps, what it means to have identity in your family relationships. And Matthew is pointing out that when Jesus called the first disciples, they left everything behind. Like the call to follow after Christ for them, was absolute. And in the same way for us, it is absolute. We follow Jesus in every aspect of our lives. Like there's no net or no boat or no father that we cling to and we say this doesn't have to do with following Jesus. He, he transforms everything about us. He transforms our ambitions, why we get up in the morning to go to work. He transforms our, our, our relationships with family members, siblings, cousins, neighbors, and friends. And we follow Him. I follow Him. I'm called to follow Him as a husband, as a father. Like That's not something over here and my religion is over here, but no, I'm to follow Jesus at 10.30 p.m. when I'm just trying to chill out and I have some kids come in the room and ask for some water or something. I've got to, in that moment, follow Jesus. You are called to follow Jesus in your homes. You're called to follow Jesus as a single adult. You're called to follow Jesus as a co-worker, as a student. This morning in our class, we talked about unemployment. You're called to follow Jesus in your unemployment. Like, there is no sphere of life that Jesus, uh, of which Jesus does not say, this is mine. But we leave everything behind, and we absolutely follow him, and it is total. Our comfort, then, becomes secondary to following Jesus. Friends, what, what comforts are you hanging on to? that are keeping you from following after Jesus? What comforts are you hanging on to that are keeping you from following after Jesus? It could be relational. You don't want to ruin a certain relationship because if you passionately follow after Jesus, you're going to lose that relationship. It could be uh, addiction. Or maybe your, 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 your comfort that you find in lust is just better in your mind than what Jesus can give you. 
pride, anger, or maybe even something more subtle. I value my space. And I can't let anybody into my space. They might make my house dirty. If that guy sleeps on my couch, he might soil my couch. Or maybe our time. I can't give up my time. My time. My precious time. Do you realize how behind I am on this Netflix show? I can't give this up and follow Jesus. What are we doing? What was the problem with these life-saving missions? Is it nothing, nothing more than what our problem is? That we're more involved with ourselves, more concerned about making each other happy and making each other comfortable and keeping our space and our time than we are about the life-saving mission, rescuing the perishing, caring for the dying, going to the broken, going to those in darkness. So here's our mission. We've got, we've got the masses, we've got the message, and here's our mission. What is our mission? I was speaking with a pastor this past week, and he was telling me about this, uh, how frustrated he was because his church did this mom's outreach. They broke everything down, they cleared out their space, and they put on a dinner to, to try to engage with neighborhood moms and just love on moms. And so they had church folks come, church moms come, and then they had a, a good handful of neighborhood moms who accepted the invitation and came to the event. He said, during the event, the church moms are sitting at the tables together, talking, laughing, carrying on conversations that they had a week before. And the neighborhood moms were sitting by themselves, awkward and alone. Caring more about our comfort zones of who we know, who I know I can easily have a conversation with. Caring more about comforting one another. And he was like, how do I get my people on mission? How do I turn their faces outward to see the lost and dying world? To see the broken and the hurting to get, get over themselves? This is the problem of the life-saving missions. And friends, if, if, if this is the way we drift, we just become a social club, and I have no desire to be part of a social club. And I don't think you do either. I thank God for the fact that there are so many in this community who are on mission. When someone broken comes through the door, quick to wrap your arms around them and love on them. Think of a sister just this last week who... Uh, connected me with somebody that they've been praying for and sharing the gospel with at work. And she wants to try to pass this relationship on with some other people to try to broaden it. What strategizing. It's beautiful. Or another brother who's highly involved in his, his, in his campus ministry and has given uh, hours and hours of his own time and, and dollars and dollars of his own money to try to reach fellow students. Or I think of Jaden who Gadsden, who, who every Saturday morning, sitting at 1411, 
waiting to see if anybody shows up, and then walking the streets and just introducing himself to neighbors. This is beautiful, what God is doing here. This is the mission that we are on. So Jesus says, look at verse 19, he says to them, he says, follow me, and then he says, I will make you fishers of men. He gives them a command and then a promise. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Three things about this that I want you to see. Number one, being a fisher of men is something that Jesus does in you. Now check this out. I said that there's a command and a promise. Do you realize he doesn't say, be fishers of men? He doesn't say, follow me and be fishers of men. No, it's a promise. Follow me. And then he's saying, if you follow me, guess what? You will be a fisher of men. I will make you a fisher of men. It's impossible, family, to follow after Jesus and to not become a fisher of men. If you say, man, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm a fisher of people. I, I don't feel like I have a concern for the lost. It's not that you just need to work up more energy and do more. It's a following Jesus issue. When you follow Jesus, you place yourself around the broken in places uh, where, where there's darkness. When you follow Jesus, you're just like a nice person. You open your home. You open your heart to others. You're a good neighbor. And it's impossible now to not have relationships of which you can begin to talk about Jesus. And if you're following Jesus, you have so much gratitude for him, you can't help but talking about him naturally. It doesn't have to be awkward. You know, so many people try to share their faith as if they have like a three-by-five card in their, in their pocket. And, you know, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Just, um, uh, hi, my name is Joel. You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't need to be like that. It should just be like a natural overflow of, uh, of, of our hearts. Count Zinzendorf. That's a fun name to say, isn't it? Everybody just say it for the fun of it. Count Zinzendorf. Yeah. He was uh, the leader of this Moravian movement in the 18th century, um, and with this community that Count Zinzendorf had established, he had three, three uh, rules for the community, and they were this. He said, number one, be nice to people. Number two, seek everyone's welfare. And number three, win people for Jesus. It's really that simple. Like, how do I become a better evangelist? All right, number one, be nice to people. You're so mean, right? Stop walking around like you're so angry and like upset at the world. Do you realize the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you realize you've been forgiven by this cosmic God and you've been promised eternal life? And you're upset because you can't pay your bill this month? Be nice. Love people. All people. Not just people that look like you. Same economic background. Not just people who are from the city. Not just people who are working downtown. Be nice to everybody. Secondly, seek their welfare. You say, I don't have any money. Seeking their welfare doesn't necessarily mean money. Sometimes people need an ear. 
They need a friend. Most of the times, people just need a friend. Seek everybody's welfare, not just the people that you think you will, you will enjoy hanging out with. And thirdly, win people to Christ. Following Jesus, living the Christ-like life, naturally makes you a fisher of people. That is the mission that we are on. It's something that Jesus does in you. It's a grace of God as He just simply grows you and you just naturally become a fisherman or woman. Secondly, it's a story that you tell. Being a fisher is a story that you tell. You know, very rarely do I just simply launch out with truths, like things to believe. I mean, that's like at the end of the end of the end of the conversation. We tell stories. I tell my own story. My life before Christ. My life of coming to understand the gospel. My life since then. Do you know your own story? You know, one great way to, to practice this is when you're getting together with friends from uh, the church or you've met somebody who claims to be a Christian, ask them, how did you become a Christian? Let that be one of the first things you always ask people. How did you, be- how, how did you become a Christian? And then tell your own story. It's practice. And also, it's a way to find out maybe they're not a Christian. Boom. Opportunity. Right? You tell your story, and then you... you, you you tell God's story. Let me give it to you simply. God is the creator God. He created all things good. But humans rebelled against this God. And that rebellion is just simply called sin. Anything against God, sin. Because we are sinners, the wrath of God is coming down upon humanity. But there's good news. God came into this world. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, died on the cross for your sins after living the life that you should have lived. And because of his death on the cross, because of his blood, you are forgiven of your sins. You have the promise that one day you will live forever with the Christ who has been risen from the dead in his kingdom. Will you turn from your sins? And will you receive Jesus as your Savior? You know, telling the story of Christ and being a fisher of people is to give people an invitation to follow Jesus. To do exactly what Jesus is doing here. Repent, turn from, and then what do you turn to? You turn to Jesus. Three points of application. I'll close you. Number one, where do you go? Where do you go? Answer, wherever you go. Wherever you go, be a fisher of people. This isn't like, hey, you've got to go here, or hey, you have to go there. This is just like as you live your life, as you shop, as you, as you make meals, as you sit in your, on, on your stoop, as you do whatever you do, as you go to work. You're going on mission. This is what matters in life. You're going as an undercover agent. You're going as a fisher of people wherever you go. And I will say this, intentionally do go to places that are not comfortable. It is so easy 
in our American existence to structure our lives in our own comfort zone. And that means a hundred different things depending on your own culture. But we all have comfort zones, and we all want to stay within our silo of comfort. What I'm saying is, is break all that down and intentionally go into the, into the relationships and the places that are not comfortable. And intentionally go, friends, into places where you know that there is darkness, there is brokenness, there is pain. And go into these places and be light, the light of the world. It's something you do, something you say, wherever you go. Secondly, what do you do? How do we do this? How do we go about doing this? Let me just give you two quick um, extremes. On one hand, you've got the, uh, we'll call them the independents. These are like the Lone Ranger Christians. These are the people who say, I'm all for the broken, I'm all for the hurting, I'm all for the dying, and my ministry is outside the walls of the church. That doesn't make any sense because the church doesn't have walls, all right? We're all outside the walls of the church. There are no walls. But essentially what this person is saying is, is I don't need the help of the community. I don't need the brotherhood and the sisterhood. I can do the work of God on my own. I've got my own mission, my own desires, and I'm just going as the Lone Ranger. That's the independent type. But on the flip side, you, you have the dependent type. This is the person who would never talk about Jesus to anybody. But they'll call up me and they'll say, hey, can you talk to Jesus about this person? Joel, there's a person that really needs to hear the gospel. I'm like, who is it? It's my sister. Okay, have you told your sister the gospel? No, I can't do that. That's, can you do that for me? I, I've honestly had calls very similar to that, pretty regularly. That's the dependent type. You see what I'm saying? I think there's a third way here. I think it's a both and. I think we go boldly into the world without the crutch of having to have somebody else to go with us. We boldly share the gospel, but we also are on mission together as a community. And by the way, the community is part of evangelism. How is it that people come and see? What do they come to? They come to the community. This is scriptural. And as they come, they see the love of Christ that is there, and they taste, and they understand that the Lord is good. The community is part of evangelism. But you also have a particular responsibility as an individual. Lastly, why do we do it? Do we do it because it's exciting? It adds something, some level of excitement to your life? Yeah. On one hand, there is excitement to it. Like, I think my life is, I have a better quality of life because I'm on an eternal mission than I would if I was not if I was just on my own small little mission. Um, but at the same time, how many of you guys actually fish? You like, like cast a line or a net if you're like old school? All right, so we got some 
fishermen and women. Um, I don't fish because it's boring. Yeah, I, I've never told you this. I don't fish. I, I want to run a boat, and I just want to go out and buzz around the lake for a while. And that's fun. But I don't fish because it's boring, all right? It's funny to me, though, that Jesus calls us to be fishers. You know, it's, it's going to be very ordinary at times. Fishing after people is, at times, it's going to feel boring. And that's okay. It's not always going to feel exciting and a fire and mission. But no, we're called to a life of faithfulness. And sometimes, for the few of you that do fish, sometimes you know that the fish don't bite, and you go home discouraged. Notice Jesus doesn't say catch fish. He just says throw the line out there. I'll do the rest. Why do we do it? It's not because it's just exciting. We don't do it out of guilt either. We don't do it because God will be happier with us if we live a life on mission. Why do we fish? Well, it's because we are eternally grateful for our Savior, the one who caught us, the one who reeled us in, the one who filleted us. How far can I take this analogy? Open us up, pull out the old and put in the new. I don't know. Fried us up. The one who consumed us. All right, that's enough. We are so grateful for our Savior. That's why we do it. We just can't help but loving Him. And when we love Him, we can't help but fishing. Telling others, like, do you know about Jesus? Do you know about this man? Do you know about this one who died on the cross for my sins? Do you know about Him? Have you heard of Him? Are you following after Him? Are you clinging to some, some things that, that you think are better than Him? They're, they're not. Like, I'm not being judgmental and like fire, but they're just not better than Him. I'm just telling you. He's precious. He's sweet. He's lovely. He's life. He's our King. He's our Savior. That's why we do it. We do it because He makes us into fishers. So follow Him. That's really the call here. Follow Christ. The entire Christian life could be summed up, I guess, with these two words. Follow and fish. Follow and fish. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time together. We ask that You would help us to be more faithful as a follower of Jesus Christ. That we might live our lives consumed with what He thinks of us. That we might understand His grace his mercy, his forgiveness, and out of the abundance and overflow and gratitude of our hearts, we pray that we would be on mission together individually and as a community. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.